So this is going to be episode one. Um, I'm not quite sure how I'm actually going to start this, to be honest. I've done various different sort of shows and kind of podcasts in, in, in the past, and this is one I've been thinking about for a long, long time. Um, and, I, and, and I've kind of got it structured in my head, but I don't know how I'm going to start it. So um, I guess I'll just kick off with what is going to be episode one. So um, this is Entrepreneur Life with me, Joel Campbell, and I'm an entrepreneur. So yeah, Entrepreneur Life, the whole kind of concept of this podcast and this, 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 this video cast and this show really is to share my experiences as an entrepreneur, my experience as a businessman, um, and how that's unraveled, I guess, over the last decade, really. I mean, I've, I, I, yeah, that, that's kind of it, how it's unraveled over the last decade. And I've got no kind of strategy, if you will, about exactly how I'm going to approach this. I'm going to be incredibly open, incredibly honest. I'm going to say things in this podcast that are certainly going to get me into trouble. Um, without a doubt that, you know, I'm going to have people turn around and say that they're not happy with things I've said or things I've shared and stuff like that. But I think that's important because I don't really have anything to hide in that sense. So um, I'm going to try and open it up as much as I can um, and just go through that. So the way I'm going to, I'm, I am going to framework or structure this slightly is today's episode. So episode one is going to be, um, I'm going to talk about me. I'm going to talk about some of the things that drive me, some of the things that have got me to kind of where I am. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the, um, the, the pitfalls and some of the positives and stuff like that. I won't go into too much depth, but I am going to concentrate more about me. And I think that's a really good place to start on episode one. And then as, as, as we go through this and as, as more happens and transpires um, and I start discussing more things, the next kind of shows will start to create themselves effectively. And some of that will be off things that I talk about, and some of that will be, um, hopefully, off things that people are commenting on or questions they're asking, things they'd like to know. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I'm gonna do it. Um, I keep checking my watch to make sure that the camera's still recording, because uh, it's really annoying when you're, when you're chatting for 20 minutes and you look down and you find out you've stopped recording eight minutes ago, um, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind of what we're gonna do. That's how it's gonna work. I'm trying not to waffle too much. So I guess let's, let's just crack on. Um, I knew I wanted to run my own company from a very, very young age. I think I knew that I wanted to run my own business from, from around the age of six or seven. Um, and there was a very specific moment that I remember in my, in my past that actually, helped me to, to get there, or certainly kind of started me on that journey. And so I'm just finding a pen, because you get pens and paper, so I can write down some of the things that I talk about, so I think about future shows as we go. And, and then you've got my full guided, un, uh, full guided, full un, um, uninterrupted attention. So yeah, I guess I was, I was seven years old, and I can still remember it. I was driving from the, the small village where I grew up with my mum, um, uh, and she was driving to uh, a, a small local town nearby, and we went past a petrol station, like a, a small like kind of garage really, and it had a um, uh, a little cafe next to it, kind of something that looked like it belonged in an American horror story really. Um, and we drove past it, and I just randomly went, "Hey, I'm going to own that garage one day." And my mum was like, "You what?" And I was like, "I'm going to own that garage one day." And she was like, 
okay, fair enough. Um, and I guess that's where the journey began for me, but, and, and yeah, that's kind of how it's moved forwards, and, and I've always thought of that garage, and I drive past it still on occasions now, and I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's the garage I was going to buy. Um, uh, but I come from a, um, one side of my family, my mum's side of my family, is, is very kind of business orientated in the sense of they have run their own companies. My mum and my aunt ran their own dancing school for a number of years. Um, uh, they're professional dancers and then they started their own dancing school. Um, and, and yeah, that I, I remember her doing that all throughout my childhood. She would, uh, I guess, drop me off at school and then she would prep classes and teach and stuff like that and I'd get picked up and then she'd be teaching in the evenings and then I can remember being at home and she would, or we'd be, we might have dinner or I'd be like watching some TV and she'd be there and she'd then be doing uh, the cashing out factory because back in those days, um, you know, everything was paid for in cash and checks. So she'd be doing the accounts and things like that and doing registers and I guess doing marketing and enrolling new students. So. I just always remember my mum running her own business. So that I saw from, from, you know, as far back as I can remember. And my grandparents, you know, they ran their own companies relatively successfully. They had some failures, definitely. Um, so I guess entrepreneurship and, and, and business has probably always been in my blood. Um, but interestingly, the other side of my family, my dad's side of the family, um, much more traditional in the sense of, you know, educations, colleges, universities, jobs, careers, and, and sort of retirement like that. And, and very kind of risk adverse. My dad's very sort of safe, and although he's very proud of what I've done and what I've created, I know that when I first, when I started one of my companies, my dad said that he just didn't think I, I, I really, you know, had I kind of thought it through, was that the way I wanted to go? It seemed like a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, you know, not a lot succeeds. And, and he did say to me a few years later, he, he was just like, Do you know what, I just couldn't have done that. He was just like, you just, you just so, so much risk. And, and, and that really kind of said it all, that um, you know, two different sides of a coin um, is, is kind of how I grew up. And I guess that's probably allowed me to have a reflection on both sides, but I'm a really strong believer, a massive, massive firm believer that entrepreneurship, it's in your DNA. It's ingrained in your DNA. It's part of who you are. It's not something you can learn. It's not something you can become. It's something that you are. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna write that down as, 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 as a show topic. I'm gonna to put these down as show topics. And I think that, you know, um, I'm gonna write entrepreneurs, entre, my spelling is awful. Uh, I'm gonna write entrepreneurs are, Born, not made. And I'm gonna pick that up on a show at a later date. But that's that's one of the things that I really strongly believe in. That entrepreneurs are born, they're not made. Um, business people, they're made. There's a difference between an entrepreneur and a business person. Um, and I count myself as both, but fundamentally, first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur. This is Entrepreneur Life with me, Joel Campbell, and I'm an entrepreneur. So that's kind of where, where that began really. And then, and then for years, I knew I wanted to run my own company. I didn't know what I wanted to do it in. Um, when I was the age of 12, I think it was, um, I, I guess the spark sort of kicked off again. I, I remember being at Glastonbury Festival with my, with my dad. Um, uh, and 
I was uh, with a few friends and we were basically wandering around, just as you do as kind of 12 year olds at Glastonbury. If you've been to Glastonbury, it's an amazing festival. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's out of this world. Sorry, I'm just drinking some tea. Um, I know I'm choking on it. <laughs> it is out of this world. When you're 12, and I, I, my parents had always let me have quite a lot of room to, to wander and to roam because we grew up in a small village in the, in the 80s and the 90s, so it was very safe. So I'd always been given a big, big free reign with my friends. And anyway, we're at Glastonbury Festival, so you know that, that was exactly the same thing. I was just allowed to go off and do my own thing at the age of 12 and wander off. So me and my friends had gone off. And we came across these two guys, um, stoned out of their tits, completely off their fucking nut. Um, and they were basically, they, they were there as promotion guys for kickers. If I don't know if you remember the, the, the shoes, kickers. And they basically had these key rings. They were really cool. They were completely out, out, out there, but they were really cool. These like little kicker key rings that were the shape of a shoe. It was the sole of a shoe with the word kicker across it. And they were like flexi key rings. They just had a, the, the key ring attachment to it. And they were just giving them away, but they were stoned out of their heads. And I turned around to them and I could sort of see that people were picking these, these things up. They would hand them out. People were just taking them. And I was like, you have to sell those, surely you can sell those. Um, and I didn't know they were promotion guys. I was 12, I didn't know they were giving it out to, to promote kickers. So I turned around to these guys and I said, hey, like, you know, that, that, that looks really cool. It looks like good fun. Me and my friends will do that for you if you want. And these guys just thought that like, they'd hit the jackpot, I guess, because here were these 12 year old kids. And I will do this job for you. A job that these guys were probably weren't getting paid for, I imagine, but probably got free tickets to Glastonbury to do. And um, and like I say, they probably just wanted to go and continue getting stoned and listen to music. So when I turned around and said, we'll do it for you, they passed me over this this bag, and it was this, um, I guess, kind of like, a, I don't know, maybe half a bin bag full of kickers key rings. Uh, there's probably, a, probably a, a couple of hundred in there type of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And they went, whoa, wait, there's more. And then out from underneath the table, they put two more bin bags. And there must have been hundreds of these damn things in there. Tons and tons and tons of them. Um, and I remember just thinking like, oh, Christ, okay, here we go. Um, so these guys kind of uh, sort of wandered off, basically. And me and my friends kind of wandered off. My friends had gone off a little bit further at this point. I was sort of chasing after them with these three bin bags of, of key rings. And, uh, and I was saying to them, look guys, we, we could sell these. And they thought I was nuts. They thought I was absolutely bizarre. They'd watched the entire thing that, that I'd seen. Um, but they'd seen something completely different. And that was kind of what was really interesting to me, was I'd watch these guys giving these things away and just watching people take them, looking at them going, that looks cool, and putting it in their pocket. And I'd look to one and go, that looks really cool. I bet people would buy that. My friends, however, they saw these guys just handing these things out. They didn't see an opportunity there. And, 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 and that was quite an, quite an interesting thing, I think, in, its, um, in itself. And maybe we'll pick that up again, but again, I think that's part of the entrepreneurs that are born and not made and how we see things. Um, anyway, long story short, I persuaded my friends that we could sell these things for 20p a piece um, and off they would go basically, and, and, and that was kind of the model. Um, so I started showing them, they, they didn't believe me, they're like, no, 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 it's not gonna happen. I went, look, watch, I went, ah, key rings, key rings, kickers, key rings, 20p, kickers, key rings, 20p, um, which is kind of what you do in Glastonbury, I don't know why, it's, it's like a market in London somewhere. 
And uh, anyway, this guy was like, oh yeah, I'll have a couple of those. And, and there it was, 40 pence. It took two key rings. My friends were like, what? And they looked at me like I'd invented fire. And I was just like, told you. And that was that. And we just went about and we just sold and sold and sold and sold and sold and sold. And for a best part of, I don't know how long, but for, for a good couple of hours, we just blitzed these kids out. In a group, but like surrounded across a, a space with, with us all sort of near each other. And we just blitzed these. And by the end, we got to the end of it. We made like a, a, a few hundred quid. Um, we'd done really bloody well, 20 p's, it was crazy. Um, and we ran out of stock and we went out of business. <laughs> it was just like the most disappointing thing ever. It was the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in that few hours from coming up and seeing an opportunity, building a business, getting my stock, recruiting my staff, training them in doing sales, watching it be successful, holding the money in my hands, running out of stock, and then the business folded. And it was, it was like a few hour turnover. And I just remember that my friends were like, yes, this is great, we've got this money, we can go spend it, this is brilliant. And that was great, don't get me wrong, it was. But again, they saw the spending of the money. I didn't think of the money necessarily. I was like, oh, now I'm really disappointed and I had a low because I was like, now what do I do? And it didn't matter that I was at Glastonbury Festival, I can go and watch all these different bands play and stuff like that. I think Prodigy were on that year. Um, it was the fact that my business had failed, <laughs> it had gone under after a few hours. Um, and, and, and what I didn't know at that time, and I know now, is that wasn't going to be my first encounter with businesses failing. Um, sad to say, I, I, maybe I wish it was, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that was my first kind of real startup company. Um, and, and I love it. And, and, and I still speak to one of those guys today. I'm still friends with one of them today. And we still sort of chat about it every now and again. But like I said, I, I saw it different. I saw it very different to how they saw it. Same situation, different perspectives. Um, so anyway, um, I then probably spent, well, I did then spend the next 16 years in different jobs, varying different jobs. I trained as a chef when I first left school. Um, which I really enjoyed, but I knew I didn't want to do it as a career. But it gave me a really good fundamental skill set um, in terms of cooking, one that I still love and very passionate about today. Um, I went to Australia and lived in Australia for a year. I did a range of different sales jobs, and that was a brilliant to do because I did so much, so many different types of selling. It just gave me a really good insight into both sales and marketing and approach and communication to so many different things like that. So. That was, that was, again, fundamental to my skill set. Um, I spent time working in leisure, funny enough. Uh, it's a long time, actually. I carved a career out in the leisure industry where, um, a, very, a very successful career, in fact, where I started off as a lifeguard at the age of 20, I think it was 21 when I started as a lifeguard. Um, uh, you know, as I still say to this day with, with my friends I was lifeguards with and to my wife, I saved lives, I made a difference didn't jump in the pool once, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and I, and I, was, I was a lifeguard for, for a number of years, um, and I went through some really difficult times at that point as well, which I won't go into too much now, but I, but I suffered really bad anxiety. I was off work for, an, for, for a, you know, a good few weeks, if not a couple of months. Um, I really struggled. I had full-blown panic attacks where I would just pass out. I couldn't leave the house. It, it was horrendous. It was awful. And, that's probably another one to pick up another point. So I'll make a note of that for a show, actually. I'm just going to write anxiety. 
Um, I'm going to spell it wrong. Uh, I'm going to write panic attacks. Um, and I'm going to write being in your own brain. So that's going to be another show. That's cool. Um, so anyway, so I was going through that, and 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 I, and I did very fortunately. I you know I, I worked very hard, and I had a lot of support around me from both my from both my partner, from my family, from my friends, and 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 I overcame that. And when I overcame that, what I was able to do then is, is start working in the gym. So I embarked on a fitness career, became a gym instructor, um, and all through this time, I was learning. I, I I still knew fundamentally. I wanted to run my own company. I would say to people. When they would talk about what they want to do, what you're going to do when you're older and stuff like that. Bearing in mind, I was like 24 at this time, I think, 20, yeah, 23, 24. Um, and I was like, oh no, I'm going to run my own company. I'm going to run my own company. I just don't know what I'm going to do yet. And, and I've been saying that for years. I'm going to run my own business. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to run my own business. I just don't know what I'm going to do yet. Um, and, and some people thought it was fine, other people thought it was mad. Um, my mum, actually, funny enough, was just like, he'll just find his thing. At some point, he'll just, he'll just click and he'll find his thing and that'll be that. And my dad, I think, was just very happy that I had a solid job. So that was, that was kind of all good, really. Um, anyway, I trained as a fitness instructor and I loved that. I was really passionate about that, really engaged in that. Um, and I then trained as a personal trainer and I taught classes. And I, was, you know, I was into fitness in a, in, a, in a decent way. I had a good understanding of it, good fundamentals. And, I started working in the gym, I stopped being a lifeguard, I was working in the gym, and then I became a gym manager or duty manager, if you will, in a leisure centre where, where my responsibility was the gym. Um, so I really enjoyed that, and, and I did that for about uh, just under a year, it was about, about nine, ten months, and an opportunity came up to take over a leisure centre. We're still at the same company, we had 17 sites, but um, we're working for the council, funny enough, and, and an opportunity came, over to, to, came up to take over a leisure centre, and I went for the job. And I got it, and I think I was 24, I must be 24, 25 um, at the time, sort of transitioning between the two. And, uh, and I got it, and, and I was amazed. I was running my, own, my entire own leisure centre, and I did that for a year. And on one hand, I was incredibly successful. I had amazing figures. I mean, the, the site was failing when I took it over, so you could argue the only way it was up um, or burning down. Um, but I did huge things with it in the first year. We went from, you know, we went from a deficit, I think of, it was about 70,000 pounds deficit to a 17,000 pound profit in the first year. So like nearly a 90,000 pound swing, which was unheard of in council operated leisure centers. Um, we uh, had the largest increase in, in Quest, which is like a, a kite mark, if you will, for leisure, where again, we went from like a 52 all the way up to a 76, I think it was. So it had huge increases. Um, and it was really good. It was very, very, uh, I did really, really well that first year. And my bosses loved me and I got lots of pats on the back and I got lots of praise. Oh my God, look at this guy. He's a rising star. He's, a, you know, he's, he's great. He's going to be brilliant. He's going to set the world on fire, which I am. Um, but the downside of that was I was an awful, awful manager. My staff hated me. I mean, properly, properly hated me. Um, and I just didn't care. And I, I guess I was probably, um, I, I guess I didn't notice as much maybe because I had all the success, all the praise of the success, if you will. 
So therefore, I felt like I was doing a great job because everyone was telling me I was doing a great job, but my staff hated me. So anyway, and I'll talk more about that, I think, at, at probably at another point, maybe. And there's, there's lots of things that happened in there. There was, um, there was a lot of time that I spent um, in, in you know, taking drugs and stuff like that and, and drinking. So there was a heavy amount of abuse that I put my body through as well in my 20s. Um, and I'll go into that at another stage. I'm not going to do it now. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's more to talk about in, um, uh, a lot more to talk about in, in that job that I was in where I ran my leisure centre because it was at that point that Emma and I um, uh, were, were, were pregnant, well, she was pregnant, not me, obviously, um, with our first child. Um, and we went through a really difficult pregnancy where, where Emma was really sick, the baby was really sick, and, uh, and she was born prematurely, and, and unfortunately she, she survived for 31 days before she passed away. And Emma and I were both very young um, at the time, you know, we were trying to deal with that individually, we were trying to deal with it as a couple. We both had our own careers, Emma was a psychologist working in, in behavioural change programmes with, with sex offenders in a prison, so she had a really big, heavy career. I was trying to, to carve my career out as well, and we'd gone through this horrendous time um, over sort of a, a seven month of really intense, heavy emotional time. And, and at the end of that, we'd, we'd, we'd lost our daughter and it was just, you know, it kind of, it was just, everything was kind of ripped away from us in that sense. And one thing that was really good in that time was our employers were so supportive. And I remember my, my bosses at the leisure centers were just so, so supportive throughout the whole thing. They, I remember them just saying to me, when, when I, I had to make this phone call, and I was, sorry, it's quite difficult, I'm actually getting quite emotional sort of just speaking about it, but I remember making the phone call to my boss, who was the, the, the sort of um, operations manager across 17 sites type of stuff, and, and I had to tell him that, that our daughter was, was, was going to pass away. She hadn't even passed away at that point, but we knew it was going to happen, and, and I just remember he couldn't, he couldn't even speak himself, and he was just so apologetic, and he said, look, whatever you need, however long, whatever you need, just, just take the time, you'll get paid, the money's not a problem, just whatever you need, just you and your wife, we weren't married then, but just you guys, just whatever you need. And I, and I just remember that was so, so powerful for me and, and they really paid that forward. Um, so any, anyway, we, I, I'll move on, I'll, I'll come back to that again at another point, I'm sure, but this isn't a counselling session, it's a podcast for entrepreneurs. Um, Anyway, we went on and, um, and I moved out of uh, the leisure centre management job because we were transitioning out of, a, out of a council into a leisure trust. So the opportunity came up for me to take on a centralised role working across 13 leisure centres, driving forward the gyms. So there I was, I was 20, I think I was 27 by this point, 26, 27, flying through my career and I've become this... Uh, area manager effectively across 13 sites where I was looking very specifically at the fitness suites which was the biggest income generator and supporting the sites in terms of driving that forwards. Um, needless to say I again wasn't very popular with the staff which ended up being a bit of my downfall um, in the sense because they didn't like me and they kind of got together and, and complained and that sort of kind of ousted me and there weren't really enough results in the world to negate, you know, eight leisure centre managers being very unhappy with me, shall we say? So that that didn't go so well. Um, let me just have some tea. 
anyway, from there, what happened off the back of that was I um, <laughs> I um, basically decided that I was I was I was at a point where I was ready to start my own company, um, and I found this idea. I've been working with a company through through my leisure connection, basically. Um, or I've been working with this company, I should say, before I start, before I made the decision to start my company. I've been working with this, the, these guys in America through the fitness side of things in the business I was working in, so in the leisure centers. And we were doing some really cool programs with um, activity tracking. So this is long before Fitbit hit the UK. Um, this is back in the days of Nike Plus. And this company called Fitlinks and made this really cool little activity tracker. You put it on your shoe, and it tracks your activity. And it could tell when you were walking, running, cycling, hopping, skipping, what you would do, how much activities, tracks your steps, your calories, your distance, and your time. And that fed back basically to, a, to, a, to an online portal, if you will. It wasn't an app back then, it was just a, a, a raw database of files and data. Um, uh, and, and we could collect the data and we could sort of present it. So we were kind of running trials. I designed these trials to run in schools because I was like, well, this is a really cool way of engaging kids. They don't go to the gym, it's just everyday. For me, it was everyday activity. It, what I'd been doing for the last few years was targeting the top six to 12% of the population, the fitness seekers, the decision makers that had already gone, I'm gonna get fit, I'm gonna join a gym, and I'm gonna go regularly. So the health, the, the, the health connected as it, as it would be. What I was interested in though was the, was the other side of the spectrum, the 88% of people that weren't connected to fitness, that wouldn't come to gyms. I'd spent a lot of time trying to market to these people to get them into the gym. And I realized that actually, I was trying to sell them a product they just didn't want. Um, so so I, I was looking at this, and I was looking at this sort of mass population kind of model and thinking about how we could make this work. And, and I came up with this concept, of, well, we could build this into a really cool app, similar to Facebook. We could connect activity and communication and challenges and engagement and wrap it around a reward system, like a point system, like Tesco's club card points effectively. So you know, you do a thousand steps, you get 10 club card points. And then every time you're walking, you get money off your shopping. And to me, it just made absolute sense. So I took this, I built this into, into, a, into a business package and I took it to the CEO at the time. And I said, hey, look, you know, clearly we're having trouble in, in, in my job. Clearly people aren't happy. You know, obviously this isn't going well. I said, and, and, and clearly we're gonna to have to, you know, this is gonna to have to change. I said, but I've come up with this, this idea from this project we've been working on with the schools, and, and this is it. And I delivered him a small business plan. I said, what I'd like you to do is invest 70,000 pounds in this idea. So let me build this app with these, with these developers. Let me bring in this technology and let me target schools and businesses. I wanna target companies. I wanna target big companies so we can get big scale populations in and I was like and, and there's a cost to it but they're not going to come to the gyms and, and I remember him saying and, 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 and it's really interesting but I remember this guy saying to me at the time he, uh, he was like well how are you going to make money and I was like I, I don't really know but that wasn't what was driving me and I was like I, I'm not 100% sure I said but we're going to have stacks of data I was like we'll have so much data I'll be able to tell you how much activity people do in different businesses, in different work environments, in different areas where they live, different age groups. I said, I'll be able to just give you reams and reams and reams of data. And he turned around to me and he said, don't be silly, you can't sell data. You can't make money off data. And I was just, I was quite naive still. And I was like, oh shit, I can't be right, man. There must be a way of making this work. And the next day, the very next day, 
Facebook published um, that I think they just made a billion dollars in data. And I just sat there and I was like, there it is. That's the model. So I went to my CEO and I said, hey, billion dollars in data, that's the model, that's where we should go. And he was like, no, they make it in ads. That's not how it's gonna work, like it won't work type of stuff. So anyway, kind of, I, I'm kind of paraphrasing a, a, diff, a bigger conversation. I'm sure he remembers it slightly differently. But the bottom line came to the point of, he didn't want to do it, and I get that, I understand why. He's not an entrepreneur for a start, um, but I understand why. Um, so I turned around and said, well look, I, I want to go forward with this, I want to do this. And, and, and a few weeks later I handed him my notice and I left and I told them this is what I was going to do. I was very open about it and they were like, cool, no worries, crack on. And that was it. I had my idea for my very first company. And at the age of 28, uh, I think I started around my birthday, so around the end of May, um, when I was 28, I started Step Success Limited, my very first proper limited business. Um, and it was, that was it, I was, I was on the road. Um, I chucked in a couple of grand, they sort of Emma and I sort of had squirrels in our bank accounts. I went to the bank and I borrowed 18,000 pounds to get me started and that allowed me to buy some stock and allow me just to kind of get things moving. It was just me. Um, and then I bought a business partner because I knew I had to um, build a website, build a small application, like a web-based application. Um, so I, 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 I knew a guy, um, and this is, this is kind of one of my first big mistakes, I guess, um, because I knew a guy who built websites and stuff, nice enough guy, we don't talk anymore, he hates me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I knew this guy and he had a web company, so I said, look, you know, I've got this idea, I'd be really interested in you guys, in you building the website type of stuff. Thing is, don't really have any money, um, or I've got a small amount of money, but I kind of need it for this thing over here. Would you be interested in taking a percentage of the business instead of like payment for your services? And he was up for that, so he ended up with 30% of the business. Here's my first lesson for you. If you're going to go into business with somebody, be very, very careful about the percentage rates. There's certain numbers that make a big, big difference. One of those numbers is your expect, 51%. Obviously, it gives you voting rights, gives you majority voting rights. You can pretty much kind of push through what you want to push through to a point. The next number, however, 75%. I didn't know this, and I ended up giving away, or not giving away, but selling out 30% of my company. And that came to bite me in the ass, big style down the line. So anyway, started running this company, um, built the website, it was a really good website, built logos, did some videos, got it out there, started moving it. And I started picking up clients. I picked up Network Rail, I picked up Tesco's, I picked up fucking Boopla. Like, you know, some good size companies. Um, picked up about five or six schools, a couple of universities, a couple of gyms, um, and things were going okay. Everything though was on a trial basis, these were all concepts to prove so it was all kind of early stages no big contracts per se but big companies were working with with small groups of people to prove concept um, and i was very open with people i remember sitting in a meeting with network rail and sitting with a couple of company directors and i was talking about what we were doing and how we were going to grow this and how we were going to do that and i've always talked in the we sense because in my mind it wasn't just me there was this big company we were a multi-million pound business we just hadn't generated the multi-million pounds. And there was multiple teams. We just hadn't hired any other people. So in my mind, that's kind of how it was, this big thing. 
And I was saying to them, well, we've done this, and we're going to do this, and we're setting this up, and we're going to do this for you, we'll do this, and this is how this will work. And, and they turned around to me and said, can we just check one thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And they were like, this we you talk about, is there lots of people behind this, or is this just you? And this thought went straight through my head of like, do I tell them the truth or do I lie? And I made the decision right there and then to be completely upfront. I didn't feel any reason I had to lie to these guys. I had nothing to prove. So I, no, it's just me. And they went, okay, carry on. And they were fine with that. And, and I, and I remember sort of thinking to myself as well that after the meeting, I was driving home in Coventry. I was like, what would have happened if I said, oh, there's loads of us, and I bullshitted it, I blagged it. Would they have been okay with that? Would they not have been okay with that? Would they have called me out on it, and then that would have done the deal down? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I made the decision to be, to be straight with them, and I think that's really important. You're just straight up with your clients. And anyway... The company ran quite nicely for sort of the first six months or so, sort of building and developing. And, and slowly I was kind of running out of money to, to, to get it going. And, and then my business partner felt it would be good if we got a PR company involved. And the PR company, I never worked with a PR company before in my life. I never had, I didn't really know what they did type of stuff. Kind of thought it was marketing, but wasn't sure. So they came up with this great strategy and I remember going up to their offices and they're showing off all these great things, these great ideas, showing those big cutouts and magazine articles, what he'd done for all these clients. I was just bowled over, like, oh, these guys are amazing. Oh my God, everyone's gonna hear about this. They're gonna get it everywhere, which is what they're telling me. And it's just gonna go, you know, just boom, I'm gonna be a multi-millionaire. <laughs> this is great, business is fucking easy. Um, anyway, their, their cost was 12 grand and I didn't have anywhere near that much money left. So I went to a different bank and I borrowed, borrowed 12 grand um, to, to be able to pay the PR company. And basically what the PR company then did was they, they pitched this product to consumers. And the trouble was we didn't have a consumer facing product. We had a, a group product built for corporates, built for businesses with you know, hundreds of employees, not a consumer product like Fitbit. And we couldn't deliver what they were pitching. And actually they couldn't even get it into magazines really. They couldn't get it anywhere. And, we just basically just pissed 12 grand up the wall and got nothing from it. Um, and that was really kind of the, the, the really big turning point then for the business. It started going downhill and some of the concepts, it wasn't that they weren't proved. We were kind of okay on that standpoint, but the schools weren't able to fund it and some of the smaller businesses weren't and the gyms didn't get there and network rail just dragged on and dragged on and dragged on for a couple of years. It was that golden goose that never laid an egg. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I guess the other big thing, like, I just didn't realize until too late, because at one stage I was like, well, we need to build a better app. I was like, this is the problem, it's the app. We need to build a better app. So I then got a, a, a developer in um, to build a new app, and that cost another 18 grand. So I borrowed that again, and you know, I borrowed all this kind of money type of stuff, and I made all these commitments to different places. And, and we just weren't making anything, it was just going bad. And I remember having to have a phone call with the HMRC at one point and explain to them I couldn't pay the VAT because I'd spent the money. And it was just, it was just bad. And, and Emma and I at this point were starting to now not have enough money for food, so we were living on pasta, um, just like dried fucking pasta. I just like pasta, plain pasta. We couldn't even afford cheese or pesto, so it was just like boring pasta day after day. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was sort of going, it was going south then by that point quite quickly. And, and 
And yeah, what I, what happened kind of next was um, was was really gut wrenching. Was that the network rail deal kind of it fell apart on me in the sense that they went they, they something new started. He'd actually worked for Nuffield before and designed Nuffield's health systems. Um, and when he started, he decided he was going to put everything out to tender. Um, and we just didn't stand a chance against the Nuffields of this world. We just didn't stand a chance. And, and Nuffield picked up a massive contract from Network Rail that he'd spent two years embedding the behaviour and the culture. Um, and that was, that was gut-wrenching. Um, and one thing I hadn't realised along this whole journey was I always thought I was running a health company. And I wasn't. I was running a technology company. And the difference between a health company and a technology company, straightforward. A health company costs money to run, definitely. Money to invest and to grow. A technology company costs a shitload of fucking money to grow and to run. Um, and I just, I was out of my depth, didn't know what was going on, and the business came crashing down. And it came crashing down with, you know, a big chunk of debt. We were talking about what ended up being £83,000 worth of debt in that company and nothing to show for it. Fortunately, I've been speaking to another business up in London who I've done a little bit of work with, a PLC, a healthcare PLC. And at that time, the, the CEO was going through a, a journey of acquisition, buying other businesses, folding them into their mix and building this huge, massive health system to go to the, the big private companies and then to hit the NHS with and, and, and do some of the public health contracts. And he really liked what we had, it was unique and stuff like that. And he could see the opportunity for it, which was great. And um, as the business was failing, my business partner and I, we'd fallen out massively. He couldn't understand why it wasn't succeeding. I was trying to explain it, he couldn't get it. And we were just arguing, it was just, we just were at loggerheads and really not on speaking terms. We had all this debt and it was just, it was just failing massively. Um, and at that time, I had bailiffs then banging on the door because they wanted to collect the money for this debt and we were living on pasta and, you know, we had people trying to claim to take the cars. It was just you know, the car, in fact, beaten up Citroen Picasso that we had. And it was just awful, awful, awful time. And this company, this uh, business called Ultrasys, this PLC, almost came along with a bit of a sort of a knight in shining armour and said, hey, look, we will buy your company for a pound and we will take over all of the debt. And I was like, oh, this weight was lifted. This huge stress was just taken off me. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this could work. And they went, and we'd love you to come work with us for a year at least and transition this business into ours and see what you can do and maybe stay longer type of stuff. We'd love you to come do that. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is, this is, gonna, this is gonna work and it's gonna kind of save me. So I rang up my, my business partner. I was like, hey, look, you know, I know we're not speaking, I know you're pissed off, I'm pissed off, it's all shit. I said, but I've got this debt, and it was all on director's loan as well, which was on me, so all of it was set to a director's loan from me, and um, guaranteed. And I said, look, I've got this company, they're willing to take the company, for, this company's willing to buy our business for a pound, take all the debt, and just move it. And he went, what's in it for me? I went, well, nothing. I was like, I mean, they're gonna pay us a pound, so, technically 30p but if you want the whole quid you can have the whole quid um, and he was like no I don't want to do it and I was like but the company's dead it's, it's going nowhere it's doing nothing it's stopped it's, it's insolvent it's failed if we don't do this I'm going to be saddled with 83,000 pounds worth of debt and his words never ever had left me 
And he turned around and said, I'd rather see you with the debt than I would see you go free and clear. And I just thought to myself, what a prick. Because I hadn't done anything wrong. I just hadn't succeeded. And I just, I just couldn't believe that somebody would do that to someone else, like so hard. So he dug his heels on, and this is where I learned that when you own 70% of a business, I, could, I couldn't force the sale. I, I wasn't able to, and I tried and I tried and I tried, and he dug his heels in. What I was able to do, what I was advised to do, is I could sell the assets of the business for like 83K, for example, and then I could pay off all the debt, and we'd still have the same, the same thing. But the company that were, were purchasing it weren't willing to do that because their concern was if, if my business partner made a claim um, to say that I'd sold the assets unfairly or you know, it was, it was, uh, there was a um, conflict in there, so I'd get off with a job, so salary and stuff, there were two concerns. They were like, do you know what? We can't do it. What we'll do is we'll give you bottom dollar effectively on it, and they paid us seven and a half grand, I think it was, for the, for the, for the, for the company um, assets. They kind of did seven and a half grand, but to do that, they had to agree with my business partner to pay him 12,000 pounds in work services that would come over the next year. So he ended up getting 12 grand out of it. Seven grand came into the business, which I paid off 7,000 pounds per day. It was just swallowed up instantly by the overdraft, so I didn't pay off any money. And I folded the business down, and was left, by the time all the interest and everything was added, I was left with 82,000 pounds worth of debt to my name. No company and a job that I just moved into. Um, and I think that probably leads me at a good point to take a break. Um, I'm gonna go pick up my daughter from a gymnastics session. So I will pick this up probably, um, uh, well, I'll pick up the next sort of 20 minutes and this will be an hour long. Um, but yeah, that was my first kind of failing um, in business. I got to a point, started a company, seen some success, thought I'd made it, made so many mistakes, as lots of entrepreneurs do. But when I made my mistakes, I made them big, 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 big mistakes. And ended up, folded company, 82,000 pounds worth of debt, bailiffs on the door, trying to take our battered, clattered out Citroen Picasso, um, a new baby that we had, so we'd, we'd had our, our second child by this point so a new baby emma and i were living off pasta i remember it's just thanking like thanking whoever it is we thank that the baby was still breastfeeding we didn't have to buy food for the baby because we just couldn't afford it couldn't afford anything bills were mounting up it was just just a nightmare really really low place and i'd had an out and my business partner wouldn't let me it was a dark 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 time and i'm gonna leave it at that point and I'll pick it back up shortly. Welcome back to part two of episode one, Entrepreneur Life with me, Joel Campbell, and I am an entrepreneur. So I just finished talking about the, uh, um, my first company and, and the failure of that. And I will go into that in, in, in probably some more detail down the line or over different episodes. And, um, the first thing you may notice if you're watching this on, on, on a video cast, um, I'm wearing something different, and that's because last night, Friday evening, um, I actually recorded the first sort of 40 minutes, basically, of, of episode one, um, and I'm back in, in, in the prison today for, for, for a couple of hours, so Saturday morning, I'm just recording the last sort of 20 minutes, so it's going to be an hour-long episode, fuck. 
man, this kid can talk. <laughs> I've seen that on my YouTube channel before. People coming to go, this guy can talk. Um, and I can, and, and I'm very happy with that. I don't mind that, because other people have the problem. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I'm not really. Uh, so anyway, so <laughs> the, uh, my, my, my company had failed, and basically um, that's where I was, 83Ks worth of debt. It was, all, it was, it was bad times, really, really bad times. And, and it's at those points, I guess, in your life, the deepest, darkest holes that we find ourselves in, and there's loads of reasons that we find ourselves in those, those, those holes and those depths is where kind of, I guess, resilience and, and how you, you deal with life going forwards from that part. And that's like what kind of separates us a little bit, I guess, from, from each other to a degree in terms of how we manage that, how we deal with it. And um, yeah, and, and, and the direction we choose to take. So I was working for the, the, the company that it, it, it paid the small amount of money for, for the business transfer. They asked me to come on board. Um, so I did, and, and I was getting paid a salary. It was, it was a good salary, it wasn't, it wasn't massive, but it was, it, was, it was okay for what it was. And I was traveling up to London four days a week and doing a, a, a five day week in, in four days, basically spending, spending four days in London, staying with my sisters, sleeping on the couch. Um, and, and I managed to work out between me and my wife, we were able to work out how to put payment plans together. So we were just keeping our heads above water paying thousands of pounds of debt back per year. Um, and I think we worked it out and it was about a, a 12, 13 year kind of plan that was gonna get us back to zero. Um, so anyway, so I was working for that company, doing that, we had, um, we had a, you know, a young child and stuff like that and, and obviously we were developing and growing. And then in 2013, so this is, this is kind of where, where we get to now, so 2000, end of 2012, I, I sold the, the, the bits of the business that were kind of left in 2013 um, they announced the government announced they were going to close seven prisons across the UK um, which included Shrewsbury Prison, Shepton Mallet Prison, Gloucester, Reading, Dorchester, Kingston, I think Peterhead. Um, so yes they announced they were closing those and, and they were going to, they, shortly after that they said they were going to be selling them um, and I just kind of was like you know what I'd always thought that the prison, I'd, I'd been around Shepton Prison whilst it was open um, and I always thought it would make a great, you know, people would pay to go round it. And I, I'll talk more about that again at another point. But for now, I saw an opportunity in Shepton Mallet Prison. I thought, you know, if we could, we could buy this and we could turn it into a tourist attraction. And I'm sure it'd be great. So I started speaking to the, um, to, to the agents and I, I got a viewing and I went round and, and looked at the prison um, at Shepton and, and, you know, got the plans and got the specs and stuff like that. And, basically put together a, a what I would do with it. And I knew that I, I was gonna be hard pressed to, to beat property developers, because I could see that the way the MOJ had spun it was that they wanted it to be sold. They wanted it to go to safe pairs of hands, effectively. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll pick that up at another point when I talk about business relationships. So do you want me to put that down? Business, um, uh, business relationships, I think that's a really key one. Um, I'm gonna put relationships and partnerships. Uh, really. Um, see how the show's going to flow and partnerships. So I basically put in a bid to buy the jail. Um, long and short of it is I wasn't successful, um, unsurprisingly. And uh, yeah, and it kind of, I, I wasn't sure what to do next. So I thought, well, do you know what? Somebody must have bought this and the MOJ wouldn't announce who it was. So I, I drew up a short list of five developers in the country, um, five development companies that I felt could kind of handle that size of development. So I, Dropped the shortlist and I basically cold emailed all of them to say, hey, 
this is who I am. I think you might have bought a Chateau Malak prison. Be really interested in chatting to you. You've probably got a year's journey of planning. Really like to take it over in, the, in, in that year's time. Um, and one of those people was a guy called Trevor Osborne, who um, you probably won't have heard of, but he bought Oxford Prison and Castle, Oxford Castle Prison, developed it into the Malmaison Hotel. Um, a fascinating guy um, in, into his mid-70s now, and uh, you know, done loads of developments in the past and still doing developments as we speak. Um, anyway, dropped him an email and he emailed him back to say, yeah, well, you, you know, I looked at Shepton, but I just couldn't see it working, so I didn't buy it. But, but what I have done is I bought Shrewsbury Prison, and would you be interested in, in, in running that or, or having a discussion about that? So um, that kind of opened the conversation. I met with Trevor a couple of times, had some you know, conversations about it. And again, long and the short of it is um, within, I think, about five months of chatting to Trevor, I was at Shrewsbury Prison, keys in hand, ready to make a start. Um, and that was it, that was kind of the beginning of, of Shrewsbury Prison and, and how that prison journey all began. Um, so we're now in July 2015, um, you know, I've got a couple of kids, we've still got ourselves, I think it was 78,000 pounds worth of debt by that point when we took over the jails, living in Somerset, still working for another company, still got, you know, 11 years or something like that of debt to pay back, no money in the bank. I had to borrow money to put petrol in the car to drive up to Shrewsbury effectively to get the keys. And I was working a 40 hour week for another company as well. So I didn't have, you know, I was working all hours. Anyway, took over Shrewsbury prison um, and started. And, and I remember that we, we were kind of putting it together, Rem and I we were at home and you know, putting together a website and trying to figure out how we we're gonna sell tickets and and how much it was going to cost, and all this kind of stuff. We had no money at all. Um, putting together the business insurance, put out recruitment ads for tour guides, and trying to get all of this kind of thing going. And, and, and we got to a point where it was just like, I remember looking at it and speaking to my stepdad at the time and explaining that, you know, the, the first month's costs were like 15,000 pounds by time we paid insurance, and then the lease, uh, like the rent, and staffing, and just all the other costs. And, and I just didn't have any money at all, and minus 78 grand. And he was just like, how are you gonna make this work? And I was like, do you know what, I have no idea, but I believe I can. So I just carried on, head down, blinkers on, and I went for it, and we, we launched the tickets, and when we launched the tickets, they went out on local media as well like that, and um, what happened was in the first 24 hours, we sold 17,000 pounds worth of tickets. And I just remember sitting there with Emma, just going, I watched it, and we were watching it in 24 hours, we were just watching it, tick, 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 just saw all this money coming in, and I was like, fuck, this is gonna work. And I, I knew it was gonna work, but it was that kind of realization of, fuck, this is gonna work. And, and I was really, really pleased. It was a really proud moment for me in my life, because like I say, Emma and I had done this together, we'd kind of built it, it was a concept, and, and, it, and it, it, was, it, was, it was gonna work. Um, and <laughs> there was loads of problems that hit. I'll give you one very quick problem that, that hit it, instantly. It was, I was like, cool, we can pay the insurance, we can pay the rent, we can pay the staff, we can pay the bills, we know we're good for the first month. Um, uh, and then PayPal, <laughs> PayPal, we used as the payment gateway message to say they were freezing our account. Um, basically, because we'd had 17,000, a brand new account, uh, and we had 17,000 pounds arrive in it. 
and it was coming in payments of like 30 quid because back then tour tickets were 15 pounds each so it was coming in payments of like 15 pounds 30 pounds 45 pounds and paypal just went back this is dodgy as fuck mate <laughs> like they were just like there's no way this is a real company no actual product you're selling a service 15 pound transactions 30 pound transactions 17 grand a day that's some dodgy so they froze the account in, and, and it was weird how they did it because what they said was you can continue to take money but you can't access it and that was my next problem was we had all this money tied up in the paypal account paypal wouldn't let us draw it down and i had to prove to paypal it was a legitimate business with legitimate products doing a legitimate thing so i had to go through that process and finally i persuaded paypal i, I convinced paypal showcased it to you that this is what it was and they were like okay well we'll, we'll let you draw down funds it was, it was like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like £500 or £300 at a time, a day, that they'd let us draw down until we built up some account, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, until we built up a, a, a bit of a background for it. So they were confident that it wasn't something dodgy. And, um, and then we were trying to draw down like 300 quid a day or whatever it was to pay these bloody bills. And I could just see payroll getting closer and closer and closer. I think by this point we were kind of getting towards the end of the month and there was like, I don't know, four or five days left. And I was like, shit, we're not going to make it. And then uh, I, I just put in an automatic kind of increase to PayPal about to up our level of, um, of uh, um, uh, withdrawals, so get access and cash. And they did, they, up, they upped it to like, 1200 quid or something a day and it was just like boom got it we can do it and the business started to flow from there um now i'm not going to go into too much about about the jail from from here that's going to be another episode obviously well it's going to be lots of episodes because you know the last six and a half years i've been running the prisons um and it has scaled it's grown and it's given me some of the highest of highs and some of the lowest of lows and it's been a, a hell of a journey random journey as well a hell of a journey and I'm still doing it day to day it's what I do um, I guess what I kind of want to get to now to, to, to finish this episode is that when I took over the prisons you know we were 78,000 pounds worth of debt um, so this is uh, 2015 to July 2015 78k worth of debt and by the time we got to January 2019 so we're talking what's that, three and a half years, something like that, we had paid off all of our debt, every single penny of it was paid off. And we'd grown the business significantly, it had, it had grown significantly. Um, we didn't have really a lot of money in our bank, but the, but the business it, it owed us a bit of cash. And we found a house that we really wanted to move into up in Shrewsbury, a lovely house. So we put an offer in for this house and then and I'll, again, I'll talk about this at a different point. I go about things in a, in a not normal way, um, as people say normal. So we put the offer in for the house before we had the mortgage, before we knew how much money we can have or anything like that, because that was the house we wanted. And then I went and figured out how we were going to make it work financially. So uh, we did that and we bought this house in 2019. And funny enough, we weren't actually in the country when we completed. We were over in New Zealand visiting Emma's parents who, who'd emigrated a, a few years before. Um, and we did the completion and everything whilst we were away. So we actually bought a house whilst we weren't even in the country. Um, and I'm, I'm going to kind of round this off now because I guess the point is that this isn't a brag or a boast, it's the reality. Because I've seen some real lows in my life and I've seen some real highs and, and I've been in a really difficult situation emotionally, financially, 
um, you know, physically and stuff like that. And, and, and um, where we are now is a very different place. So I sit here now in, in episode one, and you know, it was, it was uh, just over a month ago, uh, 2nd of February, 2022, if you're listening back to this, where I actually bought the jail. So I, I, I bought Shrewsbury Prison. And upon buying Shrewsbury Prison, it did change our finances drastically because we already had a nice house. Um, and our house is just is three and a half thousand square feet nearly, so it's not small. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a, a lovely big house. Um, you know, it's a lovely old listed schoolhouse in a nice village just outside the outskirts of Shrewsbury. I'm not going to give you the address. Um, it's got a swimming pool, uh, which is lovely. The kids love having a swimming pool. It's got a, a big double garage, which we converted into a gym. So, you know, it's kind of how people imagine. We've got a pool, we've got a hot tub, we've got you know, outbuildings, we've got an acre of land, we've got a really big house, we've got a gym. Those kind of things that people are like, oh, I'd love to have that. And we do, we've had that, we've built that, which is great. Um, and it's secure as well. You know, we had a really good percentage of it. There's not a big mortgage on it particularly. And, and you know, so that's, that's brilliant. Um, and then recently the business bought, bought the jail, so, so obviously we, we went through that process. And upon buying the jail, what happened was our, 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 our value, if you will, our wealth, increased exponentially because up until the purchase of the jail, we were basically running on a license, if you will, which meant that the company valuation couldn't be realised because it didn't matter that the business might be worth X amount. Uh, the fact was, because our license was only for a fixed period of time, Nobody would have ever bought the business because there was always a potential it would have closed a couple of months later um, because of not having the building. So when we purchased the building, what it did was it took the value of the building and released the value of the business and compounded them together and then gave us a, a, a final valuation. And the purchase, <laughs> the purchase gave, it did a number of things in terms of stability and stuff like that. But what it did was it, it, it didn't make me a million quid. Um, it didn't make me two million quid, and it didn't actually even make me three million quid. It took me from where I was, and in terms of my personal value, if, if, if we want to count it like that, we're going to talk about money, it's a bit crude, we'll talk about it very quickly. It took me from probably having maybe in the region of about four, five hundred thousand pounds of, of you know, kind of valuation, I guess, if you want, to my net worth, um, and upon doing the jail, it they escalated us to, to, to just under four million pounds. Um, so as I sit here talking today, if you, if you wanted to, to look at my net worth, it is now four million pounds, with some change. Um, and you know, that's, that's been a really interesting trip over the last sort of you know, six years, I guess, is, is being in the prisons. And, and we've scaled beyond jails as well now. We, we own five different companies. Um, yes, the majority of our businesses are in the prison tourist world, but we also own bank companies and uh, production company and stuff. We produce this podcast. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it has grown. And it was the other day that I, that I sort of went home and it was, it was about a week and a half after we'd, we'd completed on the jail and sort of things had settled a little bit. And I just sort of sat there and I remember going home and sitting on the floor, which I, I like to do on occasion. And just the realization that I'd got to a point where my 10-year goal had been achieved from 10 years previous. We owned five businesses, all doing either really well or doing okay, nothing doing badly, so that's good. Um, we owned our own properties, so we had complete control 
and we're masters of our own destiny in that sense. We own our own house, um, you know, and it's a lovely house, really, really nice house. Um, so that was good. We have, you know, we have good money in the bank personally, so that gives us sustainability and comfort in our personal lives. And we're talking about sort of Maslow's hierarchy here. All those things are kind of ticked off. Um, I've got a lovely family, you know, really, really wonderful kids. Very, very fortunate we've got such good kids. Um, I, I put it down to their, to their upbringing and the parenting. Um, but yeah, we've got some lovely children. I've got an, an amazing partner um, in, in Emma and my wife. She's, she's fantastic. And, you know, I'll talk more about that in other episodes, I'm sure. But um, so that's great. I mean, it's, it's really nice and solid and, and very happy. Um, and then we've got a really good business structures. You know, our business has come, come leaps and bounds and they're just, they're just going faster and faster and faster. We've got some really good people, really passionate, engaged people. We've got some non-passionate, non-engaged people, but you know, that's fine. There's nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with that. Not everyone can be, you know, setting the world on fire. Um, we've got some amazing people in our organization and we're financially stable. We are financially viable. I met with the bank the other day and they were really pleased with where we are and where we're going and you know they want to support that growth again and other lending partners and you know I've got other companies asking whether we'd be interested in investing in their businesses and stuff. So it's going the right way. And this realization kind of hit me of fuck, I've kind of done it. I've 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 made it to where I wanted to be. And now I can concentrate on the next goal. And it's not to say that I don't still get the shit hit in the fan daily, because I do, that's the job of a CEO. Um, and it's part and parcel of being an entrepreneur. But where I'm gonna finish this episode is, is on this. If you think you're an entrepreneur, or you feel you're an entrepreneur, or you know you're an entrepreneur, and, or even if you're a business person, you want to make that drive, but this is specifically for entrepreneurs, really. If you want to make that step, here's my, I guess, advice, or here's, here's my thoughts on, on, on what you're going to have. You are going to experience some of the highest of highs and you're going to experience some of the lowest of lows and when it's low you're going to feel like the world is caving in on you and it is just so hard and so tough and why am i doing all of this and you know you'll get the stresses and the pressures and if you're really unlucky um you know your mental health will dive in on you and you'll feel physically like you just can't do it and you know you're going to spend hours looking at the ceiling thinking about how you're gonna pay these bills and how you're gonna make this business work and all that sort of stuff. And you're gonna fail. You are absolutely gonna fail, it's gonna happen. Don't think for one second you're gonna just, it's all gonna be rosy, it doesn't work like that. So you are gonna have the lowest of lows and you're gonna to need to be resilient and tough and you're gonna to need to dig so, so deep um, to be able to pull through that. But you'll be able to because you're an entrepreneur. You will make it. You will press forwards because it's what you are. It's not what you do, it's, it's, it's literally what you are. It's, it's ingrained in you, it's part of your DNA. So you'll be, you'll be able to do that. And then you're gonna experience the highest of highs. The euphoric, you know, it's just all working, or you secure that contract, or suddenly the viability's there, or you complete the purchase, or whatever it is, and suddenly somebody says to you, hey, do you realize your business is worth this much? And this is how much you're worth, and you'll be like, Wow. And then you remember that you're not in it for the money. This, the money is a, a byproduct. It's lovely, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that you know, it's not part of the reason it absolutely is. Anybody says it isn't is, I think, lying um, or not being true to themselves. It is part of the process. But it's not the core reason. It's about the journey. 
And again, that's what sets entrepreneurs aside, is that challenge, is that next piece. Um, and you're gonna get those highest of highs. Um, the key thing I think I'm finding, I'm coming to the realization, I'm starting to do a lot of self-reflecting as well now, is it's about the consistency. It's about the lowest of lows, the highest of highs, but remaining consistently happy. Happiness is a constant. Euphoria, and, and I say it with a pinch of salt, but euphoria, and kind of the, the, the really hard sadness, they're not constants, they're, 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 they're points in time. But the happiness or the sadness is a constant, and that's where you kind of, I would suggest you need to keep it. But you're an entrepreneur and you're gonna make it. You just have to believe and keep pressing forwards, whatever happens. And that's really the end of episode one. I don't think there's a lot more to add to that. Over the coming weeks and episodes, I will talk more about um, all of my experiences, the things I've been through. I will spend a lot of time, no doubt, talking about you know the prisons because I've learned so much from there, and it has made me a, I guess, you know, a successful business person. Some people would see it depends on how you look at success and. You know, it's, it's, it's given me the platform now to, to move forwards um, and do some of the other things I want to do. So, you know, I, I will talk about those. That's pretty much, like I say, episode one. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I, you know, I go on a lot, I talk a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of waffling in there. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's a really good thing to do and I'm really pleased that I'm going to now be able to get this, this, this podcast moving. It's been something I wanted to do for a long time um, and the start, I think, of something quite special. So... Um, thank you very much for listening. This has been Entrepreneur Life with me, Joel Campbell, and I am an entrepreneur.